eternal life. And Jesus said to him, Why do you call me good? No one is good except God alone. You know the commandments. Do not murder. Do not commit adultery. Do not steal. Do not bear false witness. Do not defraud. Honor your father and mother. And he said to him, Teacher, all these I have kept from my youth. And Jesus, looking at him, loved him and said to him, You lack one thing. Go, sell all that you have and give it to the poor. And you will have treasure in heaven. And come, follow me. Disheartened by the saying, he went away sorrowful, for he had great possessions. And Jesus looked around and said to his disciples, How difficult it will be for those who have wealth to enter the kingdom of God. So word of the Lord. Let's go before the Lord in prayer. Father, we ask that this morning you would open up and illuminate um, your scriptures to us this morning, that you would open our hearts, that we might behold your glory, that we might behold your goodness, your righteousness, and your holiness in, in a fuller and a deeper sense. Um, Lord, we ask that through this contemplation that we would destroy idolatry in our own lives, that we might love you and love our neighbors as ourselves. Lord, open our hearts this morning to be receptive to your word, and, and may your Holy Spirit accompany this teaching. Amen. Amen. Well, many of you have probably heard of Ligonier Ministries. Ligonier Ministries was started by the late Reformed theologian R.C. Sproul. Sproul has been a massive influence in my life, and I'm sure he's been a massive influence in a lot of yours. And one of the things that Ligonier Ministries does every few years is they do a survey of Christians, Catholics, Lutherans, mainline liberal, evangelical, evangelical conservative. And they do this survey and they ask questions about, you know, theological questions. Many of the survey answers are worrying, shocking. Perhaps some of you have seen some of these answers. Um, but one of the survey answers that was asked pertains specifically to our study today of the rich young ruler. The statement that they asked these Christians, professing Christians, to agree or to disagree with was this. Everyone sins a little, but most people are good by nature. What do we think? How would you answer that? Would you agree? Would you disagree? Well, these professing Christians responded and said 66% of them agree that most people are good by nature, even if they sin just a little bit. And among specifically evangelical denominations, 57% agreed. Perhaps you can already guess how the rich young ruler might have responded to this statement. Are not people mostly good? Is that not a positive way to look at life? Maybe it's their, their families, their upbringing, uh, maybe it's society or the circumstances in their life that bring them to do wrong. But surely, mankind must be basically good. Well, as we discover in this passage from the teaching of Jesus himself, there is a real danger in thinking that we are better than we are. There is a real danger in thinking that by being just relatively good or outwardly good or civically good, that we can enter the kingdom of God. Thinking this way has eternal consequences. 
And Jesus puts an end to this idea of natural human goodness in, in, in his interaction with the rich young ruler. Inheriting the kingdom of God does not come through our supposed goodness, our personal goodness, but because of God's supreme goodness. So three things we'll learn about in this passage that help inform our understanding of goodness, and specifically God's goodness this morning. First, the goodness of God alone. Secondly, the goodness of God's justice. And finally, the goodness of our Savior, Jesus Christ. So firstly, let's look at the goodness of God. This man, he runs up to Jesus in verse 17. He's described as young in Matthew, and he's described as a ruler or someone of authority in Luke. And that's how we get the name rich young ruler, even though you don't see it specifically in this passage. This man, he's eager to speak to Jesus. He runs up to him. He kneels before him. He pays him respect. And we see that in his greeting to Jesus, calling him a good teacher. On further study, though, we find that this is not a common greeting in Scripture. Usually the disciples, they call him teacher. They call him master. Others call him rabbi, son of David, Jesus of Nazareth. But only the rich young ruler calls him good teacher. Why is that? Well, the general consensus from commentators is that the young man was trying to flatter Christ. We can think about, you know, he's, he's a wealthy, he's a young individual, and many times, you know, young men, perhaps like myself, right, we get to where we're, we're are going in our careers because of flattery, because we know how to, to talk to people above us and flatter them and make them feel good. Um, and so this man was probably used to that kind of flattery. This man seems to see Jesus as just a wise philosopher who may have the secret to eternal life. He knowingly compares Jesus calling him, he knowingly compares Jesus to God, calling him good, yet by referring to him simply as a teacher, he shows that he does not believe Jesus is God, but he's just man. And this is evidenced by the focus on the man himself. He wants to know what he can do to inherit eternal life, not what Jesus can do for him. And so this is why Jesus, knowing that this young man is merely flattering him by comparing him to God, while not believing he is God, rebukes him with this question. Jesus gets to the heart of the issue. Why do you call me good? Jesus asked in verse 18. No one is good except God alone. And this is the climax of the narrative. Perhaps this is the moment you did a double take when you read this. Is Jesus saying he's not good? I thought Jesus was God. I thought Jesus was sinless, that he was holy. Is Jesus not, is that not true? Well, Jesus responds this way because this young man did not understand truly the goodness of God. If he understood the goodness of God, he would not have called someone who he believed to be merely a man that he would call him good. Many heresies uh, have utilized this verse to say that Jesus was uh, indeed sinful, that he was just a normal human being. Um, But this is not so. Jesus clearly is utilizing this question to get at the heart of the rich man, uh, the rich young man's uh, heart and that issue. Goodness, it's very overused 
It's ill-defined. It's, it's misunderstood in our society. Many people view it in relative terms. Oh, that's good for you, but that's not really good for me. Um, who am I to judge what you believe is good? Of course, no one holds that viewpoint with much consistency, right? Eventually, you get to at some point where you have to make an objective truth claim on what is good and what is evil. Most people generally believe murder is bad and murder is evil. And that kindness is good. But still, our culture uses goodness in a very casual, very vague way. And Christians themselves have been influenced by this vague understanding of good. And that's evidenced by the Ligonier responses. Scripture, though, has a clear view of goodness. Goodness has its source and its, and its essence only in God. We look at Exodus thirty-three nineteen, where Moses, he desires for God to show him his glory. He asks God boldly. This is right after the golden calf, um, idolatrous move by the Israelites. And God replies to him that in response to Moses asking for him to show him his glory, he says, he will make all his goodness pass before Moses. So we see this correlation. When asked to show his glory, God points Moses specifically to his goodness. First Chronicles 16.34 says, Give thanks to the Lord, for he is good, for his steadfast love endures forever. In Psalm 34.8, David proclaims, Taste and see that the Lord is good. And finally, in Nahum 1.7, the prophet says that the Lord is good. He's a stronghold in the day of trouble. All throughout Scripture, goodness is defined by God. Because God is good. And He is the only source of good to our creation. The Puritan Stephen Sharnock, he devoted more writing on this attribute of God than anything else. And he says this about God's attribute of goodness. Goodness is the brightness and the loveliness of our majestical creator. To fancy a God without it is to fancy a miserable, scanty, narrow-hearted, savage God. For he is not God that is not good. So in scripture, goodness, it's closely tied to God's love, his grace, his mercy, his justice, his righteousness, joy, faithfulness, compassion, patience. All of those attributes find their way into God's goodness. We could say that all these attributes are encompassed in the attribute of goodness. As the theologian Herman Boving said, among God's ethical attributes, first place is due to God's goodness. Again, we're seeing why Jesus instantly focuses the rich young ruler to look at the goodness of God. Now, is this some definition of good outside of God and added to his attributes? Not so. Sharnock adds this, that goodness is not a habit added to God's essence, but God's essence itself. He is not first God and then afterwards good, but he is good as he is God. His essence being one and the same is formally and equally God and good. 
So this drives home what Jesus teaches the rich young ruler in verse 18, that no one is good except God alone. And this is, this is where the rich young ruler goes astray. It's because he's finding that definition of goodness outside of God himself. And we know that Jesus can see into the heart of this rich young ruler, and so he goes straight to there. How do you define good? Goodness can only be defined by God. We see that God's goodness flows out to all his creation. Psalm 145.5 says, The Lord is good to all, and his mercy is over all that he has made. But I want to focus on God's goodness shown specifically and clearly to those who he has called to inherit eternal life. This gets at, again, the rich young ruler's question, right? How do I attain, how do I earn and inherit eternal life? The rich young ruler believes that he can do something by his own power to merit eternal life. He believes that he can do a good work or good deed or obey the commandments in order to inherit eternal life. But if he understood God's goodness, if he grasped how good God is, that God is the supreme good, beyond anything a human could possess, then he would know that there is nothing he can do to bring to the table. We think of Chandler's sermon last week, right? Where Jesus asked the little children to come to him after the disciples have rebuked those children. He says the kingdom of God is for these children, right? Who bring nothing to the table. They bring no stature. They bring no money. They bring no influence. They bring no, in many respects, good works. And yet, the kingdom of God is for children, children of faith. So only by God's goodness, evidenced by his grace and his mercy towards sinners, ultimately in sending his son, Jesus, to die for their sin, can we inherit eternal life. As Sharnock once again remarked, the wounds of the almighty God for us are a greater testimony of goodness than if we had all other riches of heaven and earth. So only through the blood spilt on the cross can we have any hope of achieving true goodness in this life and ultimately inheriting the treasures of the kingdom of God. Well, next we move in our second point this morning to the goodness of God's justice. As the rich young ruler is mulling over Jesus' question and, and really his implicit rebuke, he moves to the details of the law. In, I think it's Matthew's narrative, right? The, the rich young ruler asks, well, what can I do, right? And then Jesus responds. But Mark, he doesn't uh, put that in the narrative, right? Jesus moves straight to the law. Why do you call me good? Only God is good, and then moves straight to the law of God. Look with me at verse 19. Jesus says to the man, You know the commandments. Do not murder. Do not commit adultery. Do not steal. Do not bear false witness. Do not defraud. Honor your father and mother. So these are the last six of the Ten Commandments. Um, these are part of the eternally binding moral law um, summed up by Jesus himself just two chapters later, as loving your neighbor as yourself. So as we think about this ligonier statement, right, which said everyone sins a little, 
but most people are good by nature. The question I want to posit is this. Would God be truly good if he let evil go unpunished? This is what's implicit in that question, right? And you've probably heard it before in culture, maybe in TV, maybe you've been evangelizing someone and they've remarked about this to you that, you know, why, why do you deserve heaven? Why do you think you'll go to heaven? Well, I'm basically good, right? I haven't murdered, maybe I haven't committed blatant adultery. Um, I've been a decent citizen. I've paid my taxes. So I think God's going to let me in. Many people believe that because they are basically good, and really by their own standard, that they will get into heaven. Or in the words of the rich young ruler in verse 17, that they will inherit the kingdom of God. So Jesus details a moral law in this passage in order to convict the hearts of those people and of the rich young ruler that they cannot follow the law perfectly, that they cannot obey the law perfectly. And that's how the rich young man should have responded, right? He should have responded straight away in repentance. And yet, foolishly, he said, Teacher, all of these I have kept from my youth. Speaking of R.C. Sproul here, he, he made an observation that the young man is a quick learner, right? He dropped the good from teacher. He just calls him teacher. He says, I've learned my lesson. Um, in the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus teaches that to be angry or to insult your brother is breaking the sixth commandment to not murder. Or even a lustful glance makes you guilty of adultery in the seventh commandment. And these come along the commands by Jesus in that very same sermon to be perfect as our Heavenly Father is perfect. And that our righteousness, if we are to inherit the kingdom of God, must, be, must exceed that of the scribes and the Pharisees who were seen as the holiest of holy in that day. So the rich young man was clearly not at the Sermon on the Mount. Otherwise, he would not have said, I have kept all these commandments from my youth. Brothers and sisters, the demands for the law of God are high. They're very high. And so understanding the moral law by Jesus' interpretation, especially in the Sermon on the Mount, means that we break these commandments every day. Every hour. Perhaps every minute. And we know that in order for God to be good, he must be just. There's no such thing as an unjust but good God. He must possess a perfect law, and he must judge lawbreakers in order to be good. So the rich young ruler, he was poorly mistaken when he claims that he has kept all these commandments since his youth. He has a wrong view of God's goodness, and that leads to a wrong view of God's justice. In order for God to be just, he must punish all evil, even the littlest bit of it, right? No evil can go unpunished. As Exodus 34, 7 says, God will by no means clear the guilty. So we know from that that all sin is worthy of condemnation. If God is to be perfectly good, perfectly holy, perfectly righteous, he can't let sin go. Um, in 1 John 1, 5, John remarks that in God there is no darkness at all. There's no sin. Abraham remarks in Genesis 18, 25, that shall not the judge of the earth do what is just? 
And later in verse 8 of 1 John 1, 5, he says that if we humans say we have no sin, we deceive ourselves and the truth is not in us. So again, in order for God to be good, he must be just and punish sin and uphold righteousness. The church father Irenaeus remarked, Justice without goodness is not just, and goodness without justice is not good. And so the true God must be both good and just. So this is why Jesus details the moral law of God in relation to God's goodness and his admonition to the rich young ruler. So I think we as Reformed Christians, right, we might say, well, this is easy. (laughs) We believe in total depravity. Uh, We believe that in the imputation of Christ's righteousness in order for us to be saved. I don't think we're, we're guilty of this, right? What, what can we learn from the rich young ruler? Well, we can easily, easily fall into this legalistic tendency, though. We saw that in the previous narrative, again, that Chandler preached, that the disciples themselves who had, were being discipled by Christ in person fell into that legalism of thinking, no, these, these children, right? I mean, what, what have they to bring to Christ? Um, we're the ones that have, you know, given everything and followed you. You think of the, you know, the rich young ruler, he was an evangelist dream in some respect. He was outwardly upright. He was influential. He was wealthy. He was engaging. He had really good social skills. He knew how to be around people. He could do so much for the kingdom of God, right? He could do so much for the church. And yet he fell into this legalism like the disciples did. So brothers and sisters, we must keep ourselves from this legalistic tendency. We must keep ourselves from legalism. As John Calvin said about the young man, he dreamed of merit. And so too, we have to keep ourselves from dreaming of merit. That's where we automatically want to go. We want to merit things. We want to earn things. And yet we must understand that when it comes to eternal life and goodness before God, the righteous judge, we cannot earn that and we cannot merit that. So, by beholding God's supreme goodness and contemplating on it often, we can keep ourselves from this dangerous pride, and we can truly love our neighbor well. Well, we've looked at the goodness of God alone. We have considered specifically the goodness of God's justice and his law. And finally, we move to the goodness of our Savior, Jesus Christ. Read with me in verse 21. And Jesus said, looking at him, loved him, and said to him, You lack one thing. Go, sell all that you have and give to the poor, and you will have treasure in heaven. And come, follow me. So many well-meaning Christians, they, they do take this to be prescriptive, right? They take this to be a command to all Christians to renounce worldly goods, to, to live a life of poverty. We see this even in, in the Catholic Church where poverty is looked upon as, as a higher spiritual good. Um, renouncing all worldly goods and riches is part of the discipleship and the following of Christ, right? All, wasn't Christ poor? Weren't the apostles poor? Um, I don't believe and I don't think many truly think that Jesus is actually commanding this, right? Otherwise, all the saints in the Old Testament like David, uh, Job, Abraham, very wealthy, 
and yet they were faithful servants of God. Never once do you see God saying, you need to renounce that wealth. Uh, we think in the New Testament, Joseph of Arimathea, who you know, was very generous and bought the tomb for Christ, or Cornelius, um, people in, in high government office that were very wealthy. Um, Jesus never tells them to renounce their riches. In fact, he never even tells the taxpayers to renounce their riches. He just says you need to do your work justly and righteously. Jesus also said in Acts 20.35 that it's more blessed to give than to receive. So how can we give if we don't have some sort of overflowing wealth, right? At the end of this passage, Jesus does not say that being wealthy is wrong. He merely says that it is difficult for someone who has wealth to inherit the kingdom of God because they idolize that wealth. So plenty of faithful Christians throughout scripture and and today can possess wealth and keep themselves from idolizing it. So it's a matter of the heart and not a matter of the physical possessions. As our call to worship said in Psalm 112, blessed is the man who fears the Lord. Wealth and riches are in his home. So the Bible speaks well about wealth and riches. Um, Poverty is a result of the fall, right? It's not necessarily a spiritual virtue to be poor. So therefore, Jesus' command to the young man is not meant to be prescriptive, but to convict him of the first commandment. You shall have no other gods before me. Notice how Jesus labels or uses the second half of the Ten Commandments, right? We would call this the second table of the law. These were commandments that involved loving our neighbor, and so they were a little bit easier to diagnose, right? Have we murdered? Have we committed adultery? Have we coveted? Have we stolen? Have we lied? Bear false witness, right? It's a little easier to diagnose, and yet the first commandment, you shall have no other gods before me, is quite a bit harder. It's a heart issue. And so the rich young ruler, he lacked loving God with all his heart, with all his soul, with all his mind, and with all his strength. The rich young ruler's heart was given to his riches. And that's why he was disobeying that first commandment. And it's not just the first commandment. It really is the first three commandments of God's moral law, the Ten Commandments. Money was a god before the true god. For the rich young ruler. Um, he had created a physical idol of his possessions. So in some respect, he had created a graven image. And he had taken the Lord's name in vain by vainly flattering Jesus with a twisted view of goodness. So as Jesus taught on the Sermon on the Mount, you cannot serve God and money. So money and wealth, yes, they can be good things, but we have to be very, very careful with them. Because they can easily, easily become an idol. And we see this all throughout scripture. That there is this constant discussion about money and wealth. And the dangers inherent in having those. So it's a delusion that this rich young ruler has kept the second table of the law. By loving his neighbors perfectly. But Jesus gets right to the heart of the issue by telling him, you've forgotten about the first table of the law. You've forgotten about the most important commands. Right? Loving your neighbor flows out of loving God. You have to believe that your neighbor is made in the image of God, right? 
So you've got to respect God first and honor God first before you can honor man. So brothers and sisters, we must take great care to uncover and destroy idols in our lives. If we would like to appear with Christ in glory, as Colossians 3 says, then we must put to death what is earthly in us, sexual immorality, impurity, passion, evil desire, and covetousness, which is idolatry. As Paul says in 1 Corinthians 6, the unrighteous will not inherit the kingdom of God. Rejecting and repenting of sin is not the end to a good life, as, as many people might believe, right? I love my sin. Um, I love not being beholden to God's law. Um, isn't happiness found in doing what I want? Well, no. The beginning of that new life and that good life in communion with God is by repenting first of your sins and seeing yourself as falling short of the glory of God as detailed in the Ten Commandments. The good life is only found in Christ. John Chrysostom, uh, an early church father, said this, We, we Christians, are only temporary guests on earth. We recognize that the houses in which we live serve only as hostels on the road to eternal life. We, don't, we do not seek peace or security from the material walls around us or the roof over our heads. Rather, we want to surround ourselves with a wall of divine grace. And we look upward to heaven as our roof. And the furniture of our lives should be good works performed in the spirit of love. I love that. Think about the furniture of our lives should be good works, not our physical possessions. Wealth and material things can so easily creep into Christians as idols. And we live in a world that presently is, you know, we live in the already, right? We live in the reality that we are saved from this world, and yet there is the not yet part that we know that there is a future life to come. So material blessings have an inherent danger. And scripture talks about that, that moth and dust and thieves are going to destroy those things that are on earth, and yet we have lasting treasure in heaven. Well, one more thing I want you to notice from this stretch of verses. Look at the beginning of verse 21 with me. Jesus says he loved the rich young ruler. It's easy to go straight to, okay, well, is Jesus telling us to sell everything we own? Is that how we inherit the treasures in heaven? Um, but we, we almost miss this little phrase, and I couldn't help but just really lean into that. What does it mean that Jesus loved the rich young ruler? This man had come before him prideful, possibly disingenuous, delusional concerning his moral uprightness. And he was about to walk away from Jesus because he could not stomach what Jesus said, and Jesus knew that. And yet Jesus loved him. What do we make of this? Well, Ephesians 2, 4 through 5 says this from the pen of the Apostle Paul. Concerning our depravity and our sinful natures. But God, being rich in mercy... Because of the great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses, made us alive together through Christ. 
By grace, you have been saved. Or as Romans 5.8 says, God shows his love for us in that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. So as Stephen Sharnock argues, you've heard a lot from Sharnock. I mean, definitely recommend his reading. Um, if God loves himself, he cannot but love the resemblance of himself and the image of his own goodness. So it's, I don't think we know completely on whether this love is a love that Christ has for his children, if this young man will eventually be saved, if his heart will be regenerated, um, or if this is just a general love for mankind, and a general love for the fact that this man does want to inherit eternal life, and he does want to follow the commands. We don't know. Um, but we do know that Jesus loves people while they are still sinners. This means that when we go through life struggling with this idolatry of wealth and possessions, when we are anxious over worldly things, when we are worried about our physical security on earth, that Christ still loves us. Jesus, he's good to sinners. He's patient, he's kind, he's compassionate. As Jesus says in Matthew 11, Come to me, all you who are weary and burdened, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I am gentle and humble in heart, and you will find rest for your souls. For my yoke is easy, and my burden is light. The yoke of the law, it's heavy, it's unbearable. And Jesus only asks that we repent, that we believe, that we follow him. Think of your anxieties, right? No one would say that our anxieties over worldly possessions and, and worldly things is a light burden, right? It consumes us, it consumes our minds, it consumes our hearts. And yet, Jesus offers himself to us with a light burden and a light yoke. Because he knows that rich treasure in heaven is to be found in the goodness of Christ. If we simply reject our love for temporal things, again, things that moths destroy and thieves can break in and steal, then we will inherit true treasures in the kingdom of God. Well, this brings us to our conclusion today. My final question is, why did the rich young ruler come to Jesus in the first place? The Jews clearly taught that the one who follows God's commandments would achieve eternal life. And this man, he's known in the Gospel of Luke that he was probably a ruler in some respect in the synagogue. This is the command that's echoed to Adam originally and his chosen people in the Old Testament Israelites, right? Do this and live. Follow my commands and blessings will come. Disobey my commands and curses will come. And that's why the Israelites end up in exile, right? They keep breaking the commands of God. And this is the creed of our culture. Be basically good and God will accept you as we saw in the Ligonier survey. But this rich man, this rich young man, knew he was missing something. He knew he lacked something. And that's what Jesus points him to. You lack one thing. He was lacking comfort 
and is a commandment obedience. He was lacking assurance of salvation. This is why he runs to Jesus and kneels before him. And this is why this passage matters to us today. Many in our world, they do believe that they're good enough to merit God's favor on them. But when they commit maybe a grave sin, or they wrestle with pain and suffering, or they wrestle with the sin of their neighbor, they immediately doubt this. Am I good enough? Well, hold up. What is the standard? So we must run and fall to Jesus. And unlike the rich young ruler, we must leave our false view of our own goodness by the wayside and repent of our sins. This is the only way we can get true assurance that we will inherit eternal life and the rich treasures of heaven. Only through the goodness and the mercy and the grace of God. As John Calvin wrote, it was then from God's goodness alone, as from a fountain, that Christ with all his benefits has come to us. So we see the Messiah promised back in Genesis 3 as a serpent crusher. He was always God's plan for salvation. Mankind needed a supremely good, not just a relatively good. He needed a, they, we needed a supremely good man to represent us and to save us. And this perfect goodness of Jesus Christ due to his divinity drove him to take that punishment for our sins on the cross. As the psalmist says, give thanks to the Lord, for he is good. His steadfast love endures forever. Let's pray. Father, we thank you that you are a good God, that you are um, willing and you desire to uh, shower good gifts upon us. And Lord, we know that the most important gifts that, that you give us are the benefits and the gifts through Christ, our Savior, who died for us, who lived for us, who obeyed for us, who fulfilled righteousness for us, Lord. So Lord, we ask that today we would um, keep ourselves from idolatry by um, contemplating and meditating on your goodness alone, Lord. Lord, we, like you promised the Israelites in, in, in Deuteronomy, that we are going to be entering a new land, a good land, uh, flowing with brooks of water. Um, but most importantly, we know that the, the water that we are going to find in the new heavens and the new earth is the water of life from the spring and the fountain of your son's goodness for us, Lord. So we pray and we thank you for all of these rich blessings and the rich goodness that you bestow upon your people, Lord. In Jesus' name, amen. amen.